after I got out of college, I didn't want to go back to teach. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that's when everybody kept saying, like, you have to be an actor. You have to be a comedian. You're so funny. You tell stories. You do this and that. And at the restaurant I was working at, that's what everybody said. But that was never anything that anybody I knew did successfully and did it. Like, I didn't take it in college. I didn't take it in high school. So after a bizarre moment of sitting at home, crying on the couch by myself when I was 23, I think, I did that. I went to the Yellow Pages and I flipped open the talent agencies. And I called Maximum Talent and they answered the phone. I was like, I'd like to be a uh, rich and famous actor. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited for you to be joining me today as we chat with our guest, Tom Batelson, about a day in the life of a working actor in Los Angeles. But before we dive into today's episode, just a quick reminder to please subscribe to the show. Whether you are listening on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Google Play, press that subscribe button so you can stay up to date on episodes. And head on over to patreon.com slash Xenia to join the fam and help keep this show going every single week and get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes content, and early access for my music and writing. Again, that's patreon.com slash X-E-N-J-A. Your support means the absolute world to me. Tom has been a working actor in LA for 20 years with credits in film and television. In Los Angeles theater, he's understudied John Ritter, worked with Larry Hagman and Ted Neely, directed by Linda Gray, and written two full-length plays, which saw their premieres on Hollywood Boulevard. In commercial, he's worked for Hometown Buffet, Starbucks, and BMW, to name a few. As a songwriter and musician, he's performed at the Hard Rock Cafe on Hollywood Boulevard, the House of Blues, and written the title track, Riding with Jimmy and Me, for the award-winning documentary, Deaners, which follows the fans of James Dean. Tom loves board games, Star Trek, painting miniatures, playing music, and telling old stories with old and new friends. I am also obsessed with Star Trek, so we will have to have a chat about that. But hi, Tom. Thank you so much for being here. I'm I'm so, so grateful to have you on the show today. I'm excited. It's great to, great to see you. Great to talk to you. Yes. So I'd like to start with just sharing how my guests and I met. Um, and we met in a mutual friend, Peter's like Tai Chi meditation group uh, that, that we do on Sunday mornings. So that's how we met, like totally random. And now we're in uh, Jen's group together. So... Yeah, it's been fun. The Artist's Way. Yes, we're doing the Artist's Way group. Yes, this is my third time doing that group. I'm. It's such a cult. I love it. It's good stuff. I got to say, I'm getting a lot out of it, and we just started, but uh, I'm getting a lot out of it. Yeah, I know. It's And it's going by so fast, too. I literally texted Jen today. I was like, how are we already on week four? Like, it feels like we just started. It just, it just happened. Like we're third through. Uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I know. I know. This is why I'm doing it three times now. <laughs> I can see how it gets addictive. I'm, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and and especially with like, we're still in a pandemic. Like I forget that, but we're still in a pandemic. And so having these communities is, it's been life-saving for me. 
I've a workout group on Sunday morning, Peter's Tai Chi class, uh, Jan's Artist Way. Yeah, it wasn't for that. I don't know what I would be doing, but I love that community hasn't hasn't ended. That the community had to reach out and become something different. I, I needed that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. So, Tom, let's start with you literally flipping open the yellow pages and cold calling up a talent agency. I think this is so amazing. And I just, I need to hear all of the things about it. I, uh, I went to college and it was going to be for music. And after two years, I realized that I don't play one musical instrument good enough to have a degree in it. I'm a jack of all trades and I play a little bit of a musical instrument. I play a bunch but I didn't play anything good enough. And so I was stuck at this, this, this point where I didn't know what to do. So I took history because I liked the idea of portraying famous people. And I didn't realize I was thinking about performing back then. So my degree was in history with a minor in psychology and I almost double minored in philosophy, all of this stuff. I like to deep thinking stuff. I love all that. After I got out of college, I didn't want to go back to teach. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And that's when everybody kept saying, like, you have to be an actor. You have to be a comedian. You're so funny. You tell stories. You do this and that. And at the restaurant I was working at, that's what everybody said. But that was never anything that anybody I knew did successfully and did it. Like, I didn't take it in college. I didn't take it in high school. So after a bizarre moment of sitting at home, crying on the couch by myself when I was 23, I think, I did that. I went to the Yellow Pages and I flipped open the talent agencies. And I called Maximum Talent and they answered the phone. I was like, I'd like to be a uh, rich and famous actor. <laughs> yes. Way to open. And they said, have you had any, uh, do you have a headshot resume? No. Do you have any experience? No. Well, did you act in college? No. Did you act in <laughs> high school? No. Okay. I'm going to give you the number of two acting coaches if you'd like to pursue this. And here's the name of two of them. And I called the first one. His name is Catherine Christopher. And she and I had a meeting and she met with me and agreed to, to tutor me and uh, took me off on to that. And that's where my acting career began. Literally, the Yellow Pages. That's amazing. Do, not to like totally date you here, but do Yellow Pages still exist? No. Uh, I, I, every time they arrive at my door, I leave them up by the mailbox. <laughs> so if you're going to the Yellow Pages for any information, you've failed somewhere. Because yeah. the, internet, the internet's now a thing. Yeah. That's so great. Oh my gosh. So, okay. So you get in touch with this acting coach and you said two months in, you were then booked with the agency. We got a headshot and a resume put together and I got some work done on my teeth to correct my smile. And she walked me through the bells and whistles on how to be professional on set, where to, how to stand, how to find your mark and stand on your ex, how to hold the copy, how to read, how to do things. And she thought I had a natural ability at it. And so she said, I'm going to give you an, an audition for my agent, which was Maximum Talent, the one that I called. And so I walked in. They met me. And after a couple of sentences, they're like, we're going to agree to represent you as a non-union talent, send you on your first audition for, uh, for a trailer home park community. And I booked it. I booked my first commercial audition that I got. That's awesome. I love that. It was a sign, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I didn't know that um, you could be represented as a non-union actor. So agencies will represent both union and non-union? Uh, well, in Denver, they did. Okay. I mean, because to be a SAG franchised agent, but you don't have to have uh, 
I mean, at the time, non-union was was different than it is now, I assume, and especially in, in a city like Denver, where they booked everything here in L.A. And then they travel to, to Denver to shoot and cast all the extras and the under five parts, which is where I got a lot of my first starting roles is that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the non-union stuff or they'd send you on other things as a non-union actor, like uh, uh, being the guy who escorts the Jägermeister girls to the bar and gives away T-shirts and things that kind of, hey, what's going on? Kind of selling acting ish. Yeah. So you were with this agency. You were still in Denver at the time. When did you decide to come out to L.A.? When I got my SAG card, I got I got lucky enough to get a SAG contract for a commercial for Dove Bar Soap. Mm. And that taft heartlied me for the union. And everybody said, well, it's now or never. And I was 26 or 27 at the time doing a lot of theater in Denver, getting acting training, doing that. And I thought, well, I can either do it here in Denver and have no possibility of getting where I want or do this in L.A., with a possibility. There's more work, there's more chance, there's more, there's more. Were you primarily doing theater? Oh yeah. I, I was, uh, I did repertory theater, uh, non-union theater uh, before I was a member of the Actors' Equity in Denver. I was in a Shakespeare company slash classical theater company where we were rehearsing for one while performing another one. We were running in rep and I, for about two years straight, I was in a play while rehearsing for another one and playing in a band. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that's you know what though that sounds amazing like I yeah it was I had very little sleep to speak of but my uh, my favorite days I would get up in the morning at around nine o'clock and I'd have to be at my restaurant job at 10 to open the bar and then work the day shift until four go home eat a little bit before going to the theater to work from six o'clock till 10 o'clock or 11 and then while still sweating from being in Macbeth or whatever put on my clothes and head to the bar and then close the set until two o'clock, wrap cords until three, back to the house with the boys and drink until four and do it again the next I love it. I was young and indestructible. Yeah. Now, not so much. Uh, Before the internet, there was Backstage West. And Backstage West was the trade paper that everybody looked at for things. And so I'd always look in there for... uh, I learned this lesson later, but work creates work. Mm. So I travel out to LA and I take a couple of casting director workshops and I meet a couple of people, but then nothing happens until I get a restaurant job and then I need money. And then I do, I'm looking for auditions. I'm like, man, I could be in a play. And I saw that there was a Romeo and Juliet in Ventura. Well, I don't know what Ventura is because I just moved to L.A. Well, it's an hour north, as I found out later. But I went to audition for it and got it and got to play Mercutio, which is a role I was destined to play and had never played before. That is my role. (laughs) Pat self on back. But I had never (laughs) played it before. Uh, And in doing that, that's where I met Jen Seifert, who got me into a, a local theater company. And that local theater company, Theater Neo, got me into a a cast and director workshop we perform, which got me an agent. And then you meet somebody and you meet somebody else, you meet somebody else. As long as you're working and creating, doing something with your, your art, things can happen. But yeah, I literally drove out uh, with my fiance at the time. She's no longer here. Are you here? No. Yeah. 
that didn't last very long, but still, yeah, she wanted to go to school in Santa Barbara and I wanted to work in LA. So we wound up in Thousand Oaks, which is a strange place to wind up. Uh, no, no plan, no idea. Money saved up and decided to just do it and changed my life. Either brave or stupid or both. Let's go with both. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in the like, everything I'm, I'm doing is a big mistake and all of those self-doubty things. But at the same time, I'm like, I can't imagine doing anything else, you know, as hard as it is right now at just starting out. I cannot imagine doing anything else. I, I go back to I go back to Denver for a visit, and I, as much as I love th those people, they are married to their high school sweethearts, and they're working in the job they got right out of college, and they're still there. Yeah, that's what they've done, and that's nothing wrong with that life. Nothing wrong with going to doing that. But I wanted something different. I don't want to say more because it's not more. It's just different, and it it strikes a lot. It rubs a lot of people strange. Yeah, yeah. There's, I get a lot of like, my family's not, um, nobody has a career in the arts. So I'm, I'm very much like, no, this is what I'm doing. Like, trust me, it'll be fine. And they're like, uh, you don't want to be a banker. <laughs> my mother's happiest day would have been if I called her to tell her I gave up and I got a job where I've got benefits and I hate it. That, that would have been fine. But like, oh, your benefits. Great. You got benefits. <laughs> Care. My son's not going to die on the streets. I don't care if he's miserable. Fuck it. You know, you're going to be oh, parents, you know, they're parents. What do you want? 100%. So what, so you, okay. So your first show was Romeo and Juliet, the theater right. production where you, and then were you still heavily doing theater over commercial stuff? Yes. At that time I was heavily doing uh, theater because I went through a phase where people believe theater in LA is meant to get you something else. Hmm. There's no theater for theater's sake. It's you perform in a play with the hopes that someone will see you from film and television and then cast you, which is a wrong reason to do anything involving theater. The only reason to do good theater is to do good theater, to tell that story, to do that process. But I went through like everybody else, you got to send out notices to people, got to get on television because that pays more money and that's more fulfilling and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I was doing more theater. Tell me about um, being hired with a theater company. Is that like the same group doing multiple shows? Theater in LA is the, the 99 seat equity theater option. If you're a member of uh, equity, the union, you're not allowed to do anything outside of an equity contract unless the theater has 99 seats or less. Hmm. small black box theater. So there's a bunch of those in LA catering to those of us in the union. And you do, you know, free theater. You don't have any money to buy any rights to anything big. So you wind up writing your own plays, producing stuff that's already been produced, nurturing young writers and working in a, yeah. And then you rent the theater space out. So none of these, it's rare to find a 99 seat theater company with a home. Hmm. We're all a bunch of nomads looking for a theater, but to own a building is far too expensive for any of, you know, for that kind of a thing. 99 seat theater companies in LA is a strange existence, but I forgot, I've skipped a part because in addition to doing theater, I did improv for two years, which is another animal that people think I'm gonna do this to get this. Mm -hmm. 
Nobody wants to do long-form improv because I think it's fun. It will enrich their soul, which is a shame because it will, but they want to do it to get on Saturday Night Live. They want to do it to get on uh, Mad TV back in the day. You know, they want to do it for something else. But I did improv. That's a wonderful way to, that's a great learning tool as well. But I feel like improv would be super beneficial for me to do, but it is terrifying. The idea of it, like I would be so bad at it and I would get self-conscious and all of the things, which is why it would be good for me. But all of those things are like, no, uh, -uh, not even going to (laughs) try. Others may disagree with the following statement, but I don't believe there's any mediocre improv. It's either really good or really bad. <laughs> you know, it's either you want to crawl under the seat because you hate the people on stage. You're like, my God, I feel awful for those people. Or how are they doing that? It's magic. When it works, it is magic. And I'm watching magicians. I'm watching magicians do it, you know. So you wrote, I didn't ask about this in the script, so I apologize, but you wrote two full-length plays. What were those? I say full length, and that might be telling a little bit of a white lie because they were a little more than a one act, but they were longer than a one act. Uh, I wrote a play for the Company of Angels Theater, which is another company I belong with called Lucifer's Lament. And we did that twice, once with Theater Neo and then once with uh, the Company of Angels, uh, which is a morality play on what happens when you die. And if you disagreed with God, who defends you in that trial? Well, the devil does. The devil comes up to stand next to you as your defense attorney because he's the only one that ever argued with God. And I cast God as a woman. And that got me a nice article in a newspaper because I did that. You know, I cast God as a black woman and they're like, we need to interview you. So that, of course. And then the other one is uh, it's called a fucking Christmas Carol. (laughs) Oh, my God. We were telling a joke at a reading for a play about uh what the next christmas show was going to be for another theater company and i laughingly said well we should do david mammoth's christmas carol and just swear a lot we'll just swear (laughs) so uh, as a writing exercise i started to write it because everyone knows the story about the three ghosts and how it works and so i penned together a a piece and then i brought it to my theater company for a reading and they said we're going to produce this and i said what are you out of your you out of your mind (laughs) But that was the one that was at the Stella Adler Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, which was uh, amazing considering uh, who the hell am I and, you know, to, to have a play be written. We got a write up in backstage, uh, backstage New York, mm. which was strange. But because of the title and my, uh, my friend did the artwork on the postcard and it's brilliant. I should post that somewhere. Huh? Send that to me and I can I can put it up on our. Uh, I absolutely will yeah. because. Uh, yeah, my buddy Eric Ham is an amazing artist, and he did all of our all of my postcard work and all of the things that I did. It was nice. It's nice to know people, and I didn't network him. We're just pals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was the writing writing two plays, and then uh, the third one I had written. Um, the company ran out of money and couldn't produce any more plays, and this was a while back. And then I got out of that theater company, and so that was the last play I'd written and had performed. I hadn't done any. What was your process like? Because I'm a writer. So I'm just, I love asking everybody about their writing process. I, as it turns out, need a class, need a schedule, need a teacher. So at the restaurant I worked at at the time, which is a steakhouse, there was this busboy named Jared. And I, Jared and I have become pals and still are to this day. And I told him, I was like, I need you to be my boss. You know your job? He's like, no. I said, you say, give me three pages every Thursday. 
because we work together every Thursday, and I will present to you three pages, no matter what they are, three pages of this, because I was working on a fucking Christmas carol, and I knew in my head what I wanted, kind of, but I need somebody on me to keep me going, to keep me writing, to keep me doing it. So I've done this a couple of times where I hire someone as my boss, and I say, your job is to ask, and your job is to demand my pages, and I give them to you, so you read them, and then we talk about it or not, but Basically, it's, you know, another person helping me with it because, yeah, motivation. Yeah, motivation is a bitch. I hear that. <laughs> I went from writing on yellow legal pads to sitting down to type at a computer to writing in a journal to, 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 to. So before phones had great uh, dictation skills and things like that. I scattered little three by five notebooks everywhere in my life. One in the bathroom, one in the car, one in the, one in the here, one in the there, one on my person at work. So anytime I got an idea, I would just write whatever it was and throw it, you know, in my pocket. I guess that was my process. When it comes, it comes. And you know that like there's many, many a sleepless night where you think just before you go to bed, like I better write this down. I won't remember this in the morning. I will not remember that. Oh my gosh. The biggest lie I tell myself with anything, not even with like stuff that I'm creating, but with anything is I don't need to write that down. I'll remember it. No, I won't. <laughs> so I have to write absolutely everything down, but it's so funny that you say you bring up um, just like going to sleep and your brain is like full of ideas. My, so I'm working on this sci-fi series. It came to me in at three in the morning, I woke up out of a dream. It came to me in a dream. And I woke up and I had, for whatever reason, my mind was like, you need to write this down. Like, you're not going to remember it. You need to write this down. There's something here. And of course, like I did and, you know, didn't touch it for like three years, but that's, yeah, it's they inspiration comes when it wants to come. It doesn't care what your schedule is. <laughs> you, you have to let, you have to acknowledge it and let that happen. And that's one of the hardest things. The other thing I had to learn was to write a little more than I thought would be necessary because I wake up the next day and read a uh, 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 pig patch car <laughs> automobile and I go well, what the hell did I mean by that what was I what was what was the genius point here so yeah all bigger bigger sentences reminding me why I came up with it and whatnot yes okay we have a very similar writing process I'm learning I will show you all of my uh random my journals full of character name and and note and some are on like I have um uh sticky notes like taped in there with like random things like yeah it's it's yes my my writing process if you ask me it's writing everything on a piece of page and then drawing arrows <laughs> yeah. yes okay yeah literally this meant this and this led to this and then this led to this I mean yep. I'm close to bringing out crayons to get me you know where I'm going because I, yeah. And I started making, um, character mood boards. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like get a community to hype up this book series before it's even published. Um, but so I created mood, mood boards for my characters and my career coach was looking at them and she was like, okay, but I don't understand any of these. And I was like, no, but they're so cool. Like there's this piece and this piece and this piece. And you're going to like in book four, you're going to find out why this piece is here. And she's like, okay, Zenya. People need a little bit more to go on than what's in your brain that they won't find out for like five years. <laughs> so, yeah. Sure, if you want to get all that, it's going to be that way, you know? Right. <laughs> so, but yeah. That's what, 
it has it has to start. I, I look at uh, work like that and pages like that and circles like that as the gymnasium. That's not you know that's not the finished product. That's not my body walking and talking. That's the gym. That's where the work happens. You know I can do that over there. A lot of people compared improv to that. A buddy of mine is an actor. He's like I'm not here to to be an improv actor, but this is a good gym. Mm, I like that. I like that a lot. There's this, one of my favorite quotes is sweat more in training and you'll bleed less on the court. I like that. Talk to me about improv. I'm so curious about it. What's like, what, what is that like? What's a performance like? The system of improv in LA, and I haven't done it in 10, 15 years, may have changed, but it used to be you go in on a level and you pay money for your level. So we'll call it level one. And then if you're good, you go to level two, pay a little less money and get a better show. And then your goal is to advance up levels, pay a little less money before you get to the top level, which is performing on Friday or Saturday night to be in the top group. It is a lot of money for places like the Groundlings or Improv Olympic West. But uh, when you start improv, they teach you games. And they say, we're going to play this game. Or no, no, no. This is called Alphabet. I'm going to go out to the audience. I'm going to say, give me, you know, give me the first letter that you think of, J, okay? And give me an occupation. And this is this occupation. And you roll. You don't have to play games. But the basis of improv is to just never deny anybody. You never say no. You say yes and. Mm-hmm. So rather than stop motion of some of this coming up with an idea, no matter what fucked up thing they just said, you say, sure, that's exactly what just happened. And I'll tell you what else. And then you add something else and then you roll with it. And sometimes, yeah, when it's great, it's this weird morphing animal that just kind of goes around and then becomes something that becomes uh, and then advancing past games is something called long form improv, which is just kind of doing it. You have 20 minutes and you do a thing. Somebody just steps forward and starts with a premise and somebody else jumps in. It's kind of a tough to explain. Well, it sounds very scary. I'm like having anxiety right now just listening to that. Do you, I mean, do you, do you do any prep for it with, with the other cast members? No. Oh my God. You don't, but you do because once you get to work with people, if I know, uh, if I know Russell does a kick-ass Christopher Walken, well, then I'm going to have to put that in. If I know, you know, his, her space work or she sings like this or can do the Tarzan yell or whatever. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to plant those little seeds to get to those moments. And you'll know people's strengths and weaknesses by what they can do. That's fair. That's cool. Yeah, it comes to this weird point of a, like if you read a, I can't remember the name of the book, it's by Del Shannon, book about improv. Uh, it's still kind of a cornerstone. That and go further back, a book called Impro which talks about status. Like I'm a status one, I'm a status two, three, four. Like I'm leading the scene. I'm the one in charge, kind of, I put it forth. Or you're an ancillary character who shows up and does things in the background. I was usually a status one, which is my ego as a Leo. Just get out there and try and direct everything. And that, you know, yeses and nos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes works, sometimes terrible. Yeah, improv. I haven't done improv in a long time. That's something. Yeah. I still think about it. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about music. You have played music your entire life, but it took you 10 years after being in L.A. to start again. Why? 
uh, my father was a piano player and wanted everyone in his family to play an instrument. And other kids are forced into soccer and baseball. We were forced into music. Pick an instrument. You will try it. If you don't like it, you don't have to continue with it. No one was ever forced to play it past a point. So I played clarinet in junior high school because my hands were too small to fit around a saxophone. But played it all the way through high school. Got to go on all the band trips, do all the fun stuff like that. Then I self-taught myself the drums and started to play in a garage band with my friends. And then uh, before you know it, I was playing harmonica and piano and a little bit of bass. I was playing in a working rock band called Mr. Woodman, uh, which is having our 25th year anniversary this July. We're getting back together to play a gig in Denver. Um, oh my God. But we worked our butts off and wrote our own songs and played, but we were never looking to, to make it anywhere. We were just a bar band. We were a fun bar band. And I said, I'm going to L.A., guys. That's it. I'm out. I'm giving this thing my all. I'm, gonna, I'm going for my acting career. So when I landed in, Den in, in L.A., I had no plan of music whatsoever. And I just mm -hmm. didn't. And then a couple of, after 10 years, my roommate and I realized he plays guitar and I play a bunch of instruments. So we'd rent a rehearsal studio. And then people find out I can do that. And then my buddy Mark says, would you play Cajon with me, the box drum, on some acoustic nights and I go sure and then we're in a working uh what do you call it uh open mic band we're in a house band playing for other people's music and then I meet people once again and it starts all over again it starts all over work creates work I didn't intend for my music career to go anywhere but once again here it was and then my buddy David says, like, can you write a song for this uh for this movie I'm doing and I went no but yes <laughs> yeah my answer with music, it's pretty much my answer with anything. My answer is yes. I will always, I guess, rather than say, no, I don't think I can do that. I will say, well, I can't do it right now, but I'll figure it out. I didn't have a recording studio. I didn't have a band. I didn't play guitar good enough for the guitar I needed. So I'm, once again, a guy I used to play with, it's like, would you play on this thing? Yes. You've got a, a studio in your house. Can we record there? Would you do the drums? Would you record this and that? And then before you know it, four of us, and put a song up. And I'm, I'm very proud of it. But yeah, for 10 years, I didn't put it out. But it's people, people want to put you in boxes. Are you a musician or are you an actor? What kind of actor are you? A theater actor? Now, you did stand up for, an, for a, a year. Does that mean you're a stand up comedian? What's going on? Who are you? What are you? We need to put you in a box. It's performance. And everybody asked me what I like better. I said, I like performing in front of people. Whatever that means, I like that, all of it. Yeah, I love that. Oh my God, the boxes. They, oh, I don't know. Yeah, because I'm, I'm over here like, I'm, I create music that sometimes has words, sometimes doesn't. I'm writing a sci-fi series. I also write poetry. I also, I also direct these things. And, you know, maybe I should just produce them and blah, blah, blah. And oh yeah, I have this podcast that I'm doing. <laughs> like, no boxes. Don't put me in a box. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, I'm sure, uh, where are you from? Because you're not from here. Yeah, I'm originally from Boston. Yeah. So when you go home to Boston, you meet people. I'm sure they ask you all about your stories and you have to tell all of your stories because they have no stories. Yeah. Like I love yeah. my, my friends back home, but a lot of times some of them just like, just tell us what you do. Yeah, we're, we're here. We're doing this and this and this and this, but you're not, you know, they assume I live some fascinating life. I don't <laughs> 
I don't, but they assume I do. So. And you know what? They'll never know the difference. So you you could make up some story and yeah. But sadly, I've got a lot of great stories. I've got so many famous people's stories from, from waiting tables, from music, from music, from acting, running into famous people, having these bizarre encounters, which I'm now so grateful for. So grateful. Yeah, don't say sadly. That's that's cool to have like all of the stories. That's that's, yeah. that's a life lived there. Like, you know, I didn't work with him, but my my story with this guy is amazing. Mm. Yeah. And those are fun, too. Like, just like random encounters of like, this never would have happened on like in any other, you know, way. So you want to hear one? Yeah, go for I'll it. Tell you one. Uh, OK, uh, judging your age right now, trying to think how you know this person. How do you know David Carradine? I've never heard of him. Right. Uh, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. Um, I've heard the name. I also, okay, I basically lived under a rock my entire childhood, so I don't know a lot of people like who I should know. Have you seen the movie Office Space? No. But you know what? I just, okay, choose a story that you think is one of the best ones, because I'm sure listeners will be able to relate far more than I can. David Carradine's no longer with us, but he's an actor who's got a couple of famous brothers and they're every now and again to do a movie together. But David Carradine is most notably known for being the actor uh, in Kung Fu, the television series from the 1960s and 70s. He played Kwai Chen Kane, who, so he's got an Asian look, although he isn't. And then he became, in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill, he's Bill. He's the lead character, the lead villain, and he's, uh, you know, he kind of came back into the fold after that. But he's known for being a little nutty he's got long hair back in the day you know and stringy jacket so a friend of mine is bartending at the bar i worked at on a dead night and said come in and keep me company and this is back when i was drinking and i went and sat at the bar and had a beer just killing time david carradine walked in put his hand on my shoulder and sat down next to me and looked right at me and went hey how, how you doing and, and i was like like this is someone from my childhood. This is a this is a big actor. This is a full-on fame shock moment that David Carradine is sitting next to me. He's in The Long Riders, which is one of my favorite westerns that my brother John and I love. And here he is. And he's kind of out of it. And he asked for a shot of stool and he's sitting there. And I he says, So what are you up to? And I said, Oh, I don't know. I'm doing this and that and the other. I can't remember what I said. And I said, So what's up with you? And he goes, Well, and he stares straight ahead into the bar mirror and doesn't say anything. And I said, well, don't keep me in suspense, Mr. Carradine. You know what you got going on. And then for a couple of seconds, he does this. Huh? And then he said it. He goes, sorry, man, I don't hear so good. What with all the guns and the rock and roll. Oh. And at that point in time, when I'm just gushing with, what did you just say? A woman comes in, a beautiful blonde woman, and says, David, are you here? We're out. We're ready to go. We were looking for you. We didn't know where you were. And he got up and he patted me on the shoulder again, paid and left. Oh, my God. This movie star who I've idolized forever came in and gave me this bizarre story of meeting somebody and then left. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> what was that? Yeah, that's, that's, oh. that's fun. Huh. 
but that only happens, that only happens living in Los Angeles, living in a in a city where the entertainment capital of the world, where stuff happens. Yeah, and it's like that's normal for Los Angeles. Yeah. It wouldn't happen anywhere else. Exactly, and it's it's a good it's a great story. I always look at life as being a collection of good stories. Like this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me, rather than here's an arc of something. You know, it's a story. Yeah. Let's talk about how the pandemic has sort of influenced your work and shifted. And now you're doing audiobook narration. And also, side note, can I hire you to do the audiobooks for my sci-fi series? Because listening to your VO, I was like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. I have to hire him. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Amazing. Amazing. Um, But yeah, just like talk about, because the pandemic hit everybody in different ways and it seems like you really like took it as the opportunity to shift i was terrified like most people you know uh getting hooked uh, getting set up with unemployment and having my restaurant job fire me so i could collect they let everybody go they just dumped the staff and it's that feeling of of not knowing what to do not having a the unknown is terrifying uh, to us we don't know what to do so in talking to other people of, uh, in, my, in my area, talking to other actors and other artists and my buddy, Eric, who, who did the artwork for my plays, which I'll send you, told me, he goes, it doesn't matter. You will be forced to create, Tom. You're gonna be in your house, be doing things. You don't know how to do anything else, but create. You have to create as an artist, to find some way to create and the rest will take care of itself. And so I started taking classes online at SAG. Uh, the Screen Actors Guild has all these uh, workshops and whatnot. And I was like, well, okay. So I taught myself how to use the program. Had an old microphone I used for music, which worked uh, for everything I needed. And before you knew it, I was recording dirty audiobooks online. I say dirty because when you're first starting out, no one's going to hire you to, to do their famous book. So you wind up taking stuff in erotica in different areas and romance and quote unquote trashy novels because they're all over the place and now I've got you know books under my belt rather than that but it's a uh, it doesn't pay anything right now your books have to sell and it's if you've got a a big author well then you know that you're golden but right now it's it's not a money-making opportunity but it was good to create and it's good to read and keep my chops up so that was that was an interesting thing. And then I had to, you know, everyone had to transform their closet into an audition booth. That's the biggest thing that happened during the pandemic is we used to go to a casting director's office and you'd stand in front of their blue screen while they shot you. And then they take the video of you and send it to the director. Now what happens is we shoot that ourselves and send it to them and they just take it and hand it to the director. Mm. We've taken their job away from them completely. We do all of the work. So every time a casting director gets uppity about things like, hey, your light, you know, make sure the lighting is good. Make sure we can hear you. Make sure your background like that. Make sure the iron increases out of your curtain. Like, hey, we took over your jobs. You guys got to be a little more gracious. You really should be a little more gracious. We, we're doing all of your work for you. All of it. But it's better for us, too. We get to be at home. And I get to control 100% of my audition as opposed to what might be at the casting director's office. So it's, it's a little bit of both. But yeah, 
it was a it was a scary thing to have to retrain ourselves and have to spend money to buy the stuff we needed to to transform that. And uh, yeah, I don't know what tomorrow brings as far as the acne world goes, but I got plenty of friends who are working still and they go out and they have to get masked up and get tests and be quarantined for two weeks in a hotel before a gig. And uh, yeah. That's got to be like really expensive. So is that happening a lot? I mean, I can't imagine the budget for that. I, I don't even, I mean... Every time I'm on set, I'm, I'm amazed at, at the money just tossed around. No one's like, gee, how come movies are so expensive? I know. I know why. If you ever get a yeah. chance to visit a set for any particular reason, you see exactly why all of that money goes. I mean, my goodness, the stuff you got to buy and spend on, on things, which is, uh, you know, not frivolous. It's not like we're not, no one's bathing in candy. It's, yeah. it's, all, it's all stuff you need, but still. Yeah. Yeah, the pandemic. People talk about whether or not it is a we're going to go back to normal or there'll be a new normal or we will just progress to a new thing. I'm in the latter. I don't know what the future is going to look like, but it will be different and we will adapt and get better at it rather than we've got to go backwards to become something else again. Like everybody loves the contactless delivery. That's going to stay. Knock yes. at your door and food arrives. That's going to stay long after the pandemic. You don't have to talk to the delivery guy. You won't. So it'll just be different. Yeah, that's that's a, a funny thing, too, because there really isn't a normal. You know, like people want normal, but it doesn't exist. Everything, everything is changing all the time. And I, I do also feel like we're we're going to it's just going to be different. And we are going to have to adapt and that's okay. Yeah. As scary as it is, that's okay because we can. Yeah. People think progress means better. It doesn't. It just means forward. Yeah. Mm. We will mm. just, we will just deal with things. We will progress, you know? Yes. It's going to have to be different. Everyone that complains about masks, it's like, Hey, I, I got no problem wearing an outfit. I got no problem wearing a costume mask on my face. What do we do? We go out, we buy funny masks. We buy masks with our team logo on. We buy different things. We make jokes about it. We adapt to that, to mask culture. Doesn't change us as people. Doesn't change who I am by wearing a mask. Right. I, my social anxiety loves wearing a mask because I also wear sunglasses. So nobody, nobody knows who I am when I go out and it's great. I, I've been doing my best. Uh, my latest thing is I look for the smiling eyes. Because you can't see the face anymore. It's like it's all about here. We always say it's all about here, but do we really believe that? Well, yeah, when you've got nothing else, you really do believe that. Yeah. And you can tell. It's it's interesting to like you can tell when somebody's smiling with their eyes or not. Yep. And it's it's good, you know. I I try my best to at my lowest, I try to bump up my my energy and my happiness for others, hoping it comes back to me because, you know. But yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I actually, if I'm having a really like down in the dumps day and I'm like outside for a walk or something, like I make the effort to smile and say hi to anybody I pass because then that lifts me up. So I, I hear that 100%. I try and tell people that uh, who belong to gyms. I made a couple of gym references. I don't belong to a gym, but I like going hiking. And every time I pass somebody on a hike, everybody says good morning or good afternoon or hey. At the gym, it is dead silent, headphones in, everybody's in their own world. Yeah. 
total better. I mean, there's, there's no arguing that for me. It's like, get, get out, see the sun, see the nature, see a person and say, hey, you're just passing. Yeah. Well, and it's like that thing of like, just saying, hey, you're acknowledging their existence. And like, that is, that can change somebody's entire day, world, life. Like it, you really have no idea how much of an impact that could make on somebody. And it's a, it, it takes a second to say, hey. It's true. But I get it. There are probably some people out there who were hit on every single day of their life. And so like, you gotta be careful about not saying hey to everybody, but responding when said, hey, too. You know, say, hey, hey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't don't go like honking at people. I've been honked at. And it's like it's a very uncomfortable experience. <laughs> I I love that because I want to get that. I want to get inside that guy's head and say, what was the plan to have a run? Yeah. After you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I got your message. I got your message. Stop <laughs> It's yeah, it's so weird. I love that you have this the psychology and philosophy interest too, because I majored in psychology, minored in poli sci and philosophy. So I yeah, I'm I'm all the the same thing. I'm like, what is going on in your brain to make this happen? Yeah, it's like follow me through that thought process. What was the best outcome you thought of? What did you what did you think? Uh, I, I bring the analogy of uh, the the best possible outcome for the third grader who brings his baseball mitt to a professional baseball game is a mad accident happens on the field. And they're like, we can't, we don't have a third baseman. Hey kid, did you bring a glove? Yeah. Well, suit up. You're a New York Yankee. Right? <laughs> that's the best all possible thing to have happen. It's never going to happen, but right. that's it. That's the top of the level. You get pulled into a game. You're in the third grade playing that game. Like, that's a movie right there oh yeah i'm sure it already is <laughs> true <think>. yeah <laughs> which i'll get you to watch because you haven't watched any movies with david carradine so now i've got you have to watch kill bill one and two kill bill like k-i-l-l-b-i-l-o oh my goodness i'm talking to a child yes <laughs> yes yeah you you are kill bill Yes, just with all the L's. Quentin Tarantino's, it stars Uma Thurman. Cool. Who's a lady, I'll just say it's a lady. Who's a lady, and she stars in it, and she's kick-ass. Oh, I've heard great- stories about her. I, I think I was introduced to her when there's some like song about her that I really liked, and that's the only reason I know her name. <laughs> it's fine. You don't know any Quentin Tarantino? Well, Pulp Fiction? No. I've heard of it. So that's something. <laughs> I, I actually, okay, I was, I only know that name too because I was assistant director for the flick. Have you heard of that play? Yeah. I, you know, I don't want to like be negative, but that was one of the worst plays of my experience because it just like, it's, it's one of those things where I'm really, really good at directing naturalism, but I get so bored. And the flick is three hours with like very like multiple minutes of silence. And I'm just like, and like, like, you know, it's a great play. And like, like, no, 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 it's not because you keep talking yourself out of that. I know, I know. It's it's saying that. I just like, I don't want to like put that label on 
somebody else's creative work. But for me, it just was not my cup of tea. But that's it's in that like the uh, Pulp Fiction is one of those when they play the that game of uh, whatever it is. I don't I apparently I blocked everything about this process out. <laughs> six, six degrees of separation. Yes. Yeah. With movies. They do it with movies and Pulp Fiction was in that. So that's the only reason I know that title. It's well, I'm assuming. Well, when I was your age. Yeah. If somebody mentioned a movie from the 40s, 50s or 60s, I had to go. I haven't seen it yet. And then I wind up watching a bunch of movies and things. Or, and then, yeah, there are movies I know can reference, know who's in them and know the lines from it that I've never seen. Mm-hmm. Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson. I know everything about it, but I've never seen it. But I know all about it, and I can tell you all about it and what happened in his career, this and that. I know it, but I have never seen it. Odd, odd that that's the case, but that's the case. No, that's cool, though. That's a talent. Because I'm, I'm over here just like, I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> all well, right. I'm not, not going to be the naysayer that says you have to see these things. You don't, but I, I recommend it. I recommend some of them. No, it's funny because anytime somebody will send me a movie recommendation and then I do watch it, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, I I love getting movie recommendations. It's just like, am I actually going to watch it? (laughs) That is the question. (laughs) I think it's a meme that I read and I hate hate meme culture, except I reference it all the time, that said, uh, I'm that guy that says, I'm the guy who never watches what you're watching. So you tell me to watch it and I tell you it's on my list, except there is no list and I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that pretty much sums me up. There's too much yeah. to watch. There's too much live streaming. I can't watch everything. I just can't. So I got to portion it out, watch what I can. I also watch the same things over and over and over because I pretend that they're my friends. <laughs> There's like some psychological comfort with like rewatching The West Wing for the 49th time. I love the West Wing. It's my favorite show in the entire I love, world. I love the, well, then I'm going to, I don't want to ruin anything, but I will. Theater Neo, the theater company where I met Jen, I was a member of because Catherine Houston was in it. She plays Mrs. Lanningham. So Mrs. Oh. Lanningham is in my theater company and she's a terrible person. Oh. She's, she's dead now, but she and I butt heads on everything i was so happy to meet her and she's just exactly with the way she acted on desperate housewives as the next door neighbor she's a she's a battle axe for better or for worse she's a a member of our theater company described her as like you know every 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 family has its crazy uncle al and she's our crazy uncle al i'm like okay that and uh uh nicole robinson was in our theater company as well she played uh uh, Leo McGarry's secretary. Margaret. Trudy. Margaret, yeah. Oh, she's hilarious. Well, I did a play with her. She and I weren't in a scene together, but she and I played it. It was great, and I love the West Wing. Love the West Wing. But I'm the same way about movies and things. We put things on in the background while we're doing regular stuff. Those are the movies we love, and those are the movies continuously missed by the Motion Picture Academy. Yes. All the movies that are best pictures, no one's dressing up as those characters to cosplay. No one's going to a television, you know, no one's going to a party as that person. These pictures that are best aren't because Mm -hmm. they're not the movies we continue to draw upon. Yeah. Yeah. 
thing. I mean, you've seen, you, you've heard of the movie Chariots of Fire. Yes. I haven't seen and, it, but I've heard of it. <laughs> have you? No, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I have heard of it. I've heard of it and I've seen it. It was Best Picture in 1981, but no one has seen it or dressed up as it since because in 1981, Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. <laughs> Indiana Jones, and did that win Best Picture? No. It's still around everywhere. Kids are being raised to raise who Indiana Jones is. Star Wars came out in 1977. Annie Hall with Woody Allen's Best Picture. Hmm. No one's dressing up like that. No one's out doing any other things. No one cares. No one references it. It's just gone. I'm are, so are yeah. I'm so interested in like what what the criteria for to win an award, win Best Picture. I'm so curious what that is. There like a checklist or like yeah, there is. Well, uh, I think Annie Hall was the last comedy to win, 1977. Comedies don't win. It's got to be a drama. It's got to have some terrible things happening to it. Uh, if you want it to win Best Picture, be at least two and a half hours, three hours if you're going to be safe. Uh, if you can throw in some Nazis, awesome. Some Holocaust, always good. Death, dismemberment's always good. Loss, depression, heavily, overly dramatized everything is how you win the Best Picture. Hmm. You know, it's like, but then again, whatever one best picture, another movie came out next to it, it gets more everything. Yeah. Like is you would think that the word term best picture is the one that made the most money because everybody wanted to go see it. And then the one that continues to make money in VHS, in DVD, in live streaming, and everything, all of its incarnations. If we can't get enough of these movies, they're our best. Mm-hmm. You know, the Princess Bride. People love that movie from my era, and they still do. And I don't remember one best picture that year, but it wasn't that. Yeah. It reminds me of, like, I as one of my uh, TV show shows that I watched when I was a kid was American Idol. But it's like, there are only so many winners who everybody still knows versus, like, the runners up who like go on to have like better careers and are in more things. And I wonder if it's that though. I wonder if that's contracts. Cause I think there's a weird thing with, with uh, if you actually win you're you're tied into a contract versus if you don't, you have a lot more flexibility to go and do what you want. Well, the only ones I can name who are successful are the ones only the only ones anyone can name Kelly Clarkson, who was the first and uh, Carrie Underwood. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's like 20 winners to, to, to American Idol walking around doing stuff, but those are the two I can recall. I think they were year number one and year number four, I think mm -hmm. she won. But that's the other thing. If you win a big thing and you're all on the television, once you get the title, people are gonna go back and start watching the next season and you're suddenly yesterday's news. Yeah. You know, that's. That's a rough career if your career is wanting to be famous. If right. you want to play music, you can do that. You can be a musician. You can play music. But if you want to be a famous musician, good luck. Best of luck to you. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting concept, too. Uh, it reminds me of the artist way where she when she talks like it's another chapter, um, but talks about like the, the lore of fame and how it really is not like there's something deeper. If you have that lore to be famous and like that's 
your goal and that's what you want, there's something deeper driving that. So yeah, it's interesting. But, and then just like creating, creating for creating sake, like that's something that I started doing this year was like taking the pressure off of all of these things that I'm doing. And it just like, there was so much more freedom I found with it. And it just like opened up all of the juices and all of the flow states. And I'm, I'm really proud of stuff, like the stuff that I've created and continue to create. And like that's, that <laughs> shift is huge. You should be. I think it's a pure direction to go in and it doesn't always work out uh, like we want, but that's a pure directive to go. Then I want to write something that's going to get on television or I want to be sitting next to Ellen DeGeneres. I've got, I've, I've got some really good, close personal friends who's, who want to be famous. That's what they want. And they won't say that, but that's the absolute truth. They can care less about creating something. They want to be famous. That's their job. Mm. And, you know, go chase that and go network people, even though I hate that. That is something people say. And I always say networks are assholes that can't make friends. Go make some friends that you want to work with and then you will work with them. And if they can get you something, then they will or won't. But don't look at them like that. If you look at them as a device to get you something, you're a terrible person. Yeah. You're a terrible human being. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's, and too, like if you're friends and it's, again, it takes the pressure off of it and you're doing it because it's fun. You know, you're creating and collabing because you want to, not because you expect it to lead somewhere else. So it's going to be, it's going to be more fun. It's going to be more relaxed and it's probably going to be better than what would have been like forced. Yeah. I mean, it was difficult uh, back to songwriting to write a song for my buddy's documentary about James Dean, who I'm not a fan of. So that was a job. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, well, how do I do this? Because I have to make it my own. It has to come from my heart. It has to come from me or it's going to be crap. Right. So I started looking, you know, wondering about stuff. And I wrote poem. I wrote, I wrote reams of poetry about what I thought this could be about. It went all over the place and then dumped it all in his lap. And I said, let's go over these together and we'll put together what you think might be around. And then came up with the basic idea for the song after that. Yeah, it has to, has to, we all have jobs. You have to do a job and write something and do something to perform something. And it won't always be from your heart, but you've got to make it from your heart, mm -hmm. no matter what, or it's going to be shit. That's, that's something too, that I'm, I'm, I think I'm feeling with one of my, I'm working on a, an album. It might turn into an EP just because I'm lazy, not really lazy, but it might work out better as an EP. Um, but I, I was finding that I was getting too lost in, what I was envisioning for like the music videos and the stories that I'm telling. And then, and, and I really needed to just step back and connect back to like, what is my soul trying to speak through every single track? Because it was, it was, a you know, each, each track was good ish, you know, as a, as a start, but it, it, there was something missing. There was that, like, how do these fit together and how do these tell the story that I'm trying to tell versus just like, yeah, that's a track and it's fine. Yeah, the music video. I mean, if you think if you're thinking like that, then rather than down yourself to saying uh, I'm a poor musician who's thinking about the music video, you're a filmmaker. You're thinking of the finished product as a film that happens to be music by you. So mm. it's your voice in a in a short film. 
That's what videos used to be back when they had it. And I'll say the old man thing that, yes, MTV used to have music videos, blah, blah, blah. I was never allowed to watch MTV. It was absolutely glorious until it wasn't. (laughs) There was nothing but music videos on and these video DJs would just come on in between and talk a little bit about music. And then you go right back into stuff. We'd come home after junior high and put it on the TV and just leave it. Leave it. And, you know, back when there was 30 videos, you just watch the same one over and over again. I've seen Jay Giles centerfold. I don't know how many times. I don't know. I could probably go, I could probably go shot for shot. I go frame for frame. I could probably do the entire thing. I do know that song. Uh, I'm an I am an old soul when it comes to music. So I do like my my favorite genre is 70s and 80s rock and roll. Stop it. I'm I'm not kidding. I'm completely serious. Bruce Springsteen is my boy. Wow. Mm-hmm. Old soul. That's right on. Because yeah, I uh, as I'm getting older, I realize my music tastes are staying in one spot. I've become <laughs> that old guy. With yes, music. I'm not new music is shit. I'm like yeah, music is shit. Like it's just not my thing. I've got a. These are all going to be in my book eventually. And I'll maybe write a book about my thoughts and crap like that. The music you liked from your teenage years, from 13 to 19, will forever be ingrained in your soul in some way to where no one else will understand why you like it and you don't have to explain it. I used to get into arguments with people who love grunge music. Well, grunge music was when I was in my 20s and I was a little past that time. I'd grown up. I was, you know... 22 years old and living, you know, on my own. And everyone's like, you don't understand about Chris Cornell. You don't understand about Audio Slave. You don't understand about Nirvana. And I was like, you're right, I don't. And I can't because it was the music of their prepubescent life. They're just learning how to drive a car. They're just getting into high school. It's like, of course, that music's going to take them right there, right back. I will, I will never understand it and can't. Doesn't mean it's wrong or right or bad or good. It's just, it's got that special place. It's that stupid joke. It's the soundtrack of my life, but that's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah, that's a really good point. I never thought about it like that, but it makes so much sense. And it, it reminds me of one of my friends. Uh, he, we, were, we would get in debates about Harry Potter. I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan or not, but I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Um, and my, so they're actually, they were my former bosses. I worked in production staff for theater companies all through uh, my college days. And uh, they were two of my bosses. And one of them was also a Harry Potter fan. The other was not. And he was like, I just, I was too old when it came out. Like it wasn't my age range. Like I, I just missed it. And, uh, and it, I'd never thought about it like that, but it makes so much sense because people who, I was younger. So I came into it, you know, when it was already a thing, but he, he was like, yeah, like if you're, if you were the age that Harry was and you like grow up with Harry, like that's, that's the, the book to your life. Like it just, it makes so much sense. And I was like, oh yeah. Yeah. That's, there's no other, cool, but it's something. It's a, it is that connection. Yeah. guys, my age uh, still love the movie, the Goonies. Because when they saw it, they were the same age as the heroes on the, on the, on the screen. And so they, you, you bond with them, you become them. And yeah. I started reading Harry Potter uh, as the second book had just come out. A friend of mine loaned me the first one. And I was like, oh, what the hell is this? And they said, <laughs> just give it a go. It's goofy, but it's kind of taken the world by storm. 
And after that, I was at the bookstore opening day for three, four, five, six, and seven, every book. And almost every movie, I was there for opening day for when the movies came out with those friends who loved the books like I did. You know, and this before anybody had kids. It was just like everybody had, all my friends have children now. And, uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a thing. When we like something, as important as how we like something. Same thing with mm-hmm. my, my trip from Denver to LA. The songs on the radio, if I hear one of those songs, I'm driving to LA, I go right there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what music does. That's what a good movie does. That's what things does. You go right back to that time period if you let it. The time travel. Yeah. The time machine. I wonder if some of that's lost though because of streaming and buying. So, like, we just have, we can choose what we, you know, we don't just like put on the, I do. My favorite station is country, but we like, I feel like it's rare to just like put on the radio and like draw, you know, it's like we're listening to something on a device that we, it's in our playlist and it's, I don't know. That's a, a thing. How old do you want this comment? Really old? Should I go really old? <laughs> Hey, I don't care. Musicians used to have to form an album and an album was an LP, one side, then the other side. So when you're putting it together, you're thinking, okay, when they drop the needle, what's the first thing they hear? And what's the last thing they hear before they flip it? And after they flip it, what's the first thing on side two? And then after that, what's the last song? That's building an album together. That's why everybody loves things like, you know, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, because it works as a piece, the entire thing. Now, if I like money off of that album, I just buy it. And where it falls in the lexicon of that, or not lexicon, in the storytelling of that one album is gone. And I think people don't build albums like that anymore. It's just a selection of songs and it doesn't matter where they fall. And the radio picks which one they think should be on the radio. And that becomes the hit. And then you buy the hit. And the B-side that used to be coveted by a lot of uh, hard rock uh, aficionados, you know, ooh, the B-side, you never get that. You never hear that. Well, those are gone. Those songs that weren't popular on the album will probably never be heard because no one buys the entire album and listens to the entire album as a piece of music. They're just gone. <clears throat> it's just the hits. It's just the popcorn. Yeah, that's interesting and is yet another, like, for me, I'm like, this is exactly why I'm an old soul. Because my albums are telling stories. Like, that is exactly what I'm doing. Like, I have singles and whatever. But when I've been thinking about constructing albums and EPs and and anything where there's multiple tracks, I'm like, I... I have that like the first track then leads to the second track to the third to the fourth and and I think it's because I also like have the 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 videos or the film the film the short films um that are going to enhance it but yeah I'm like my whole thing is I'm telling a story start to finish it's all storytelling of one form or another and uh yeah, and not every album is is Pink Floyd or, or or built together like that but every every artist had to think about that like okay this song goes in the middle of the second side. Why? Because it's not, not it's not our strongest. Mm-hmm. We're gonna... mm-hmm. Oh no, you froze. Oh no. Come back to me. I can see you, by the way. I can see. Oh, there you are. Can, there you are. Can, 
you've you've yet to freeze on me. You've been you've been perfect. So it's probably on my end. It is your fault. <laughs> probably on my end over here. My camera. All right. Sorry. Um you froze in the middle of of talking about what is in the middle, the track that's gonna go in the middle of the B side because it's not the best. Yeah. You you put it there because you don't think it's gonna have much of an airplay or or whatever or you know, it's not the first thing you want. It's not that that big hit. It's not that last impression. So yeah. it goes in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how, how music will, will develop like that, but uh, it's one hit wonders from now on. Yeah. Huh. That's 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 interesting though for me to think about because I, I do have like, I feel like I'm, I'm much more of the storyteller with... Um, electronic and edm like and there's pretty much no words at all in those um but then i have all my single creations that i do sing and i do spoken word and i sort of rap i like to convince myself that it's rap but it's probably more spoken word than rap i just feel cool thinking that i can rap um so yeah but it makes me feel better about like releasing those as singles and be like it's okay you can be you can be on your own it's okay you're a Star Trek fan. Mm-hmm. Prove it. Okay. I can't prove it. Well, that's, 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 what's his face? The Klingon. What's his face? <laughs> what did you just say? Worf. He's Worf. That's Worf. <laughs> I had his <laughs> I know, especially because I had I had like his image and I was like, what is his name? I thought about that when I, my, I was picking my coffee mug because I've got a bunch of Star Trek coffee mugs. And this is one of my one of my favorite ones because Warp's one of my favorite characters. So, yeah, I I'm obsessed with Voyager and Janeway. I actually met Kate Mulgrew randomly um, and I this was two almost two years ago now and uh the picture that we took where she's hugging me is still my phone background because i'm that pathetic um but yeah that 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 series is my absolute favorite but next gen is a very close second i'm obsessed with picard and like that that cast i love that my uh at the uh, one what is it Two restaurants ago, I worked at a restaurant uh, where Jerry Ryan was a regular and she came in all the time. And one time I finally got bold enough to ask her for a picture and she goes, don't post it. And I said, I won't. I'll just send it to my friend. And she goes, OK. And of course, she's wearing no makeup and she's gorgeous. She's amazing. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, of course, she doesn't want anybody to post it to see that she's naturally beautiful forever. And at that same bar. On a dead night, I was working behind the bar and Jonathan Frakes walks in and says, hey, it's just you. I'm going to sit here at the bar with you. And I went. And I have a, a Star Trek screensaver on my phone at the time. Still do. It's a different one. But I, I said, he goes, I said, first things first, there's my credit. There's my credentials. He goes, all right on. And we talked <laughs> it was just before Discovery was coming out. And he asked me my opinion. He goes, do you think they're they can still pull from this well? And I said, yeah, it's, mm. it's science fiction. There's always more to, to, to dig. And then before you know it, he's directing Star Trek Discovery. But I tell everybody all the time that I met my boyfriend, Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> I tell my girlfriend, <laughs> but I met Jonathan Frakes. 
one of those guys who's legitimately tall. He's crazy tall. Like really? No one in the no one in the industry is tall. Okay. No one. Everyone is, I'm five foot ten and a giant on most sets. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that works, but every time I meet someone, I go, oh, I'm a little taller than you. I never would have thought that. Television, that's how it works. Television mm-hmm. and movies makes them grand and glorious and huge. I heard that not not Robbie Coltrane, but there was like a double for playing Hagrid who actually is like eight feet tall, like in real life. And I was like, why can't we know who that person is? Like, that's cool. Well, you and I are bad fans because I guarantee the real Harry Potter fans do know his name. That's Yeah, that's a very good point. That is what I tell people when I say I'm a Star Trek fan. And they say you were a Trekkie. I say, yes, but I've never been to a convention. I don't have an outfit. I don't own a phaser. I mean, I... I guess if I met a real fan, they'd think I wasn't one. But I, yeah, I think I'm a fan. I'm just not. I'm not appropriately obsessed. You know, I don't have. I don't have enough toys. I just don't. Yeah, there's there's fans, and then there's being part of the fandom. Exactly. And then that that's not me. As much as I would like it to be, I'm gonna have my own conventions because I'm. I have very high hopes for my sci-fi series, and so I'm very excited to like have conventions for that well if the last name has to be con what's the first name um i don't know Zenith the working title the, well yeah yeah i mean no you hate that look at that face no yeah sure that's good <laughs> that's a good idea the eye the eyes say it all <laughs> yeah let's go with that the the working the working series series title is Starcrossed. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm only yeah. gonna be your audio narrator for the seven book series or however many it's gonna be, you know. So it's 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 five novels and then an epic poem backstory that'll be released after. A, a, I've already planned this out. It's great. A, a prequel. <laughs> a prequel, yeah. That's gonna come out after. <laughs> no, it's been so fun. Like sci-fi is I, so much. I fun. love science fiction. Star Trek is my Jones, but people assume I would hate Star Wars, and I don't because when I was eight years old, I saw Star Wars in the theater, and that was huge. But Star Wars, as someone who grew up in the era where there was no live streaming, there was no video yet. Star Trek was on all the time. Reruns were on the television on the afternoons, and my mother and I used to watch it together. Like it became more of my thing because Star Wars was every three years. Mm-hmm. And then Return of the Jedi comes out in 1983, and then there's no more Star Wars until 98. Like, clunk, <laughs> gone. Everyone's like, I think you not love Star Wars because it left. Because it left. That's why <laughs> it left for very many years. <laughs> I have never seen Star Wars. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, all I'm saying is um, you're a terrible person. What's going on with you? <laughs> You haven't seen Star Wars? This, no. This... Okay, okay. Now I got to ask, what are your sci-fi favorites if that ain't one? Um, Star Trek. And my series. <laughs> I, I, I like the series in my head of the things I'm currently writing and nothing else has inspired me. What has inspired me, you ask? Me. 
I have inspired <laughs> me. Literally, oh my gosh, all of my art is the the little like caveat sponsored by me and the universe. I am a passenger on what I create is what I'm learning because I'm just like my process is so like flow state and spiritual and people are probably going to be mad at me for this because it's apparently it's something like to envy <laughs> but like truly I am I'm a vessel for everything I create. <laughs> so yeah. Anyways, I apologize that we're going over time, but this is just fun. <laughs> I haven't looked at the time. It's uh I, I, I knew you would take care of that and I would just have to be here. We can jump into our final five speed round. Okay. Amazing. What has been your favorite production to act in, either theater or film or both? Real Men and Others was a play we did at Theater Neo, which is a collection of short works by David Lewis, who's a, a friend of mine, a playwright, directed by Mary McGuire, another friend of mine, and it is about men. It's about... 12 or 13 pieces about being a man or being male or in a comical way. Very funny. And Mary McGuire, the director, foolish, foolish woman, cast every jokester in our theater company. And we were just a bag of clowns. And we had so much fun. We had so much fun. Oh, it just it was never ending. It was never ending joking. She had a, I mean, she had a whip and a chair to get us to do it. She was so great at it because two weeks before, like a week before we were supposed to go up and perform, we had the worst rehearsal ever. And we were close to going up because we couldn't keep it together. We were telling too many jokes. So on one, one rehearsal, she said, I'm not gonna stop you guys. If you get lost, get yourself out of it and you can't call for line. So a two hour play became a four hour play and the next rehearsal, we were dead on because that's what we needed. We needed to fall, fall hard. But I have such fond memories of working with that with Mary and the gang. It was a great real men and others. I like that. That's fun. Yeah. Sometimes you need those. You just you just got to do it and figure it out and, and get it out. Like my we had a joke at my college where every Tuesday tech was a shit show. It was everything that could go wrong would go wrong on Tuesday of tech. And we would well, open on Thursdays. And so it was just like, all right. Well, due respect to those who do tech for theater and hats off to them because they're geniuses, but tech's always a shit show. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're working through that crap. You get, you got to do it and pull that. Yeah. It's not going to fit. This isn't going to work. Yep. Just got to embrace it. Okay. What's one piece of advice you have for an actor just starting out in Los Angeles? I make golf analogies when it comes to acting. Fill your bag full of a lot of clubs. There are far too many method actors in this town who think they have to do the deep feeling method acting animal exercise before they go on and do two lines. And they're making our rest of us lives miserable. And they think because, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis was called Mr. President when he filmed Lincoln, that they all have to have this, this purity of soul and have to go deep into their head. Pull that club when you need that club, but don't golf an entire day with just your seven iron. If you're doing a piece from, from Neil Simon or David Mamet, it's going to be more text-based. If you're doing Shakespeare or Shaw, it's going to be more classical. Be ready to go with whatever it is, but don't lock yourself into a single class. And a lot of people take one class with one guy or gal, and before you know it, they're 
they're focused on one way. Don't. If you're gonna if you're gonna take classes and do things, pull from everywhere. I've got stand up. I've got improv. I've got classical Shakespeare. I've got writing. I've got music. I've got. I've got. I've got. Be be well rounded in your education to be to be in this business. What's your favorite thing about performing live? Uh, they're the lost member of the of the show. You know, when you rehearse theater, that, that uh, everything's fine. But it's all going to change once that audience shows up because they're that last cast member that you don't know. It happens every single show, especially if you're doing a comedy, you go, they laugh there. We had to pause there. They, we, that's a laugh. Like we, were, we thought for sure the big laugh would be that line. And it is it never is. It's always this other thing. Uh, live music is the same way. I don't know what it is, but musicians talk about it all the time. When you're playing in front of a room and it goes silent to hear you. You could drop a pin to hear a to hear a woman's voice, you know, to hear a to hear a guitar, to hear something like that. There's this there's this communal. I'm such a hippie. There's this this communal thing. Our your energy is in tune. You know, the audience is a part of the show, even though they're just watching it. That yeah, that's something else, and it's powerful. Yeah. Have you missed that with the pandemic? Have you done any live streaming performances? Yeah, I've done a couple of theater performances and things uh, with. The comp- with the aforementioned company who asked me back to do a couple of uh, pieces. I, I don't know why, because I've been gone for so long, but it was fun and it was nice to see their faces again. And I'm acting literally right where I'm at, you know? Yeah. So, you know, but still it's people out there, people watching and in comments later, it's like, you feel that it's tough to feel the energy of another human being through this, right. but you still, you got to look for it. You got to feel it. If you could do it all over again, is there anything you would do differently? Yes, but that's a different question. Uh, I'm big on this uh, as a science fiction fan. The idea of time travel fascinates me. I know it will never happen in my lifetime. But if you could go back, why wouldn't you do everything differently? I've already lived this life. Mm. I'd go try something else. I'd do many things I'd never done before. And instead of turning left, I would turn right because I lived that life already. And as much as I'd like to go and do the same things again, there are some things I could miss. So my answer now at this age is everything. I would do everything differently. I'd try stuff I'd never thought of. That is the best answer, I think. Go and have a second one. Put on a different hat. Do it. Be a different person. I love that. That's probably also why, because I'm the same way, you do so much and you try so much in this life because it's just like, why not? Yeah. Why not have that tale to tell? I got that story. Yeah. What literally just popped into my head <laughs> was, and I probably shouldn't tell the story, but I'm going to anyways. It's fine. Um, me and me and my, uh, my friend, we were, I think we were 17 and 18 at this point. And uh, we were going to visit my uh aunt and uncle in Florida for like a long weekend. And we brought back sand, bags of sand in our carry-ons and not neither of us put it together. And we got stopped, like security stopped us because they thought it was drugs. Of course, like, of course, but neither of us put that together. And, and when going through the bags, the TSA guys. Oh, I know what that is. You're fine. Like they've seen this before. They're like, <laughs> it's just sand in a plastic bag. Fucking sand. 
Unbelievable. But yeah, no, it's just like random stuff like that. That's like, yeah, now I have a, a story to tell. My, uh, my grandmother, speaking of stories to tell, uh, not realizing that at one point in time while living in Colorado, you could not transport Coors beer past the Mississippi River. Hmm. It's a part of an old law that had to do with the growing of the hops and the growing of the things, and it was called bootlegging. And it's the subject of Smoking in the Bandit, a movie you've never seen because I know you now, you've never seen any movie. So when my grandmother came out to visit, she took a six pack of Coors beer in her purse and oh my God. Home because they didn't search you. There was no search. There's no metal detector. You could walk right on with anything you wanted, and they did. So my mother, Augustus Patelson, was a bootlegger. Oh my God. That's spectacular. Yeah. It's, it's weird though. I randomly heard this uh, story of somebody who actually like disassembled a gun and, and it like passed through the metal detector and they didn't know. So like, not to like, you know, freak anybody out, but it's also like, you, if you really want to get away with something, you probably can find a way to get away with it. We flew to Las Vegas several times before 2001, before, uh, before 9-11. And we would always have a metal flask full of whatever we were drinking. And you drop it down with your keys and pass it right through and you walk right in. It could have been gasoline to go with my lighter and my pocket knife and things you used to be able to bring on a plane. It's different, different era. And you, you bootlegged bags of sand. And I love the TSI guy. The TSA guy had seen it before and go, I know what this is. They they've fucking sand. Yeah, two teenage girls. It's it's fine. It's, love it. Love that. It's fine. <laughs> Last question. Can we do a music collab? Yes. My answer is 100 percent always uh, if anybody asks me to do anything music oriented. Uh, this comes back from working open mic gigs and playing in a band. When I played harmonica, like, would you sit in with us for a song? Yes. Play with a song? Yes. I don't know the song? Yes. I'll, I'll, yes. It's a joy to be asked by anybody in the music world to do anything. If you seriously wanted me to collab on anything, I would. Yeah, I actually, I have a specific song in mind that I just like, I recorded it and, and I was going the electronic vibe and I just feel like it's not supposed to be electronic. So I will send it to you. You can let me know your thoughts. I would love to have you on it with drums, with, with, with the box drum. That is one of my favorite instruments. I think it's so really? cool. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't play that until California. I didn't know it existed until my buddy had one and bought it. And so like, can you play this thing? And I went, well, let me give it a look. So working, working in production staff, I got introduced to so many, many different things that I like wouldn't know existed if I hadn't had that job. And that box drum was one of them. And I, from the moment I saw it, I was like, that is the coolest fucking thing ever. I could never play it, but it's really cool. Yes, you could. I bet you could. If you're a musician, you could. And, or if you have that music soul or if you've got rhythm, because it's, I love the idea of having a, a drum I can hold in one arm. Yeah, it's it's not a drum set, but if you're doing an acoustic set, it's perfect. You know, a coffee shop set, things like that. Done oodles of those. Those are work. Works great. Amazing. Thank you so much for chatting. I'm sorry we went over time. No, <laughs> it's a joy. We, yeah. got, we lost our time because you're easy to talk to. Oh, thank you. Family, check out everything Tom is doing. He is on Instagram at 
Tomba Telson, YouTube Tomba Telson. All of this will be in show notes so you can find it there. Check it out. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed your time today. Please take a minute to press that subscribe button on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Google Play. And if you liked today's episode, please rate and leave a review. It would mean so much to me and it helps more listeners like you find this podcast. You can connect with our guests and myself on social media. All of our information and more is listed in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Senya. See you next time.